Scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter 2, 11 through 21. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. This is God's word. You can keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter 2, if you'd like. That's what we'll be looking at together this morning. For the month of January and then into this morning, we've taken a a short break from our normal series that we've been going through in the Gospel of Matthew to kind of start the year by asking ourselves, what does it mean for Westgate to be the church as opposed to Approaching church as something we just go to. That's the way we predominantly, predominantly talk about the church. You know, it's something we go to. It's kind of becomes in our mind and in our experience this isolated and somewhat static reality. But when in fact scripture tells us the church is not a place or an event, it is a people. And so what does it mean to be that people, the people of God in Christ? That's what we've been asking, uh, through this series. And the book of First Peter has been helping us answer that question. So far, we've considered what real faith is, how it's the foundation of the church, faith in the gospel. And we looked at real, what real community is, how we are a family. That is our identity, a family marked by unhypocritical love. And then last week, we thought about what real worship is, which is our essential job description, making much of God, not just what when we gather together, but in all of life as an offering to Christ. And this morning, we're going to ask the question, what is real mission? What is real mission? If you walk into virtually any business or any restaurant or uh, educational institution, you're likely to see 
on the wall somewhere or if you go to their website, you're likely to see somewhere uh, stated their mission statement. Uh, you know, some a statement that indicates the purpose of that organization, its goals and the reason it exists. So Google's mission is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. McDonald's brand mission is to be our customers' favorite place and way to eat and drink, which is a little scary. But the church, too, has a mission. But our mission is not some cleverly crafted phrase uh, figured out by a team of marketing executives and you know several all-night meetings or something like that. It is a mission that comes from heaven. It's a mission that our Lord Jesus gave to his followers just as he was preparing to return to his Father in heaven after his resurrection, what we call the Great Commission. <clears throat> Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The church has been sent into the world for a unique purpose not to retreat from the world, not to become like the world, but to make disciples for Jesus Christ in all the world by bringing the good news of Jesus to bear on all of life for all people. The church has a mission. But when we think of the Great Commission, if you're anything like me, uh, it generates all sorts of different mental pictures for you. Uh, I remember the first time I went to a, a big Christian student conference while I was in college. So a thousand college students all sleeping on the gym floor, uh, overtaking the student union, gathering, singing loud songs to a loud band and, and listening to passionate speakers. And I remember being moved by the worthiness of God, by the worthiness and beauty of Jesus at that conference. I remember thinking, this is real. This is something I want to give my life to. I also remember being rather confused about what that meant. Everybody at the conference was talking about going to Africa. So I thought that if I was going to be really radical you know, for Christ, I'd have to go to Africa. That's what they're all doing. Now, God might call you to Africa. It's, it's certainly happened in this congregation before. But what is, is that what mission is all about? Is that the only thing that it looks like? Uh, does being serious about mission mean that I have to go to the mall and try and generate conversation with complete strangers and, and somehow figure out a way to bring up Jesus in that? Uh, does it mean I have to go door to door? Does it mean just telling people I'm a Christian? Um, or is it inviting somebody to church? Do, do I have to say anything or can I just kind of live, you know, show them Jesus by the way I live without ever having to open my mouth? What is real mission? What does it look like? That's the question we're, we're thinking about this morning in First Peter 2. Uh, but as we look at that, first let's pray together. Uh, Lord, uh, we want to hear your voice this morning because this is your mission, not ours. Lord, uh, you have placed your people on this earth for a reason. You've rescued us and redeemed us for a reason. 
Lord, we want to see that more clearly and we want to be faithful to it because you are worthy. So God, open our eyes this morning. Remind us of the grace that we have been shown. Give us the strength to show that grace to others. Give us ears to hear you. Give us hearts that are being changed by your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Peter 2, 11 through the end of the chapter is what we're looking at. And I want to try and answer three questions from those verses this morning with regard to our big question, what is real mission? The first question is this, why is mission necessary? It's the first thing we'll look at. Second, what does mission look like? What does it actually look like? And then third, who is called to mission? Who among us is called to this thing we call mission? Making disciples for Christ. So first, why is mission necessary? And again, by mission, we're talking about the unique purpose for which God sends the church into the world to make followers of Christ, to, to bring the good news of Jesus. So this, this incredible message of who God is, of what he's done to deal with our sin, to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, to, to take that incredible message and to bring it to bear on all of life for all people. That's our mission. Why is it necessary? Why does that mission exist? Very simply, because not everyone is a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the very simple reason. So why does that matter? Uh, one might ask. You know, aren't all religions kind of just different versions of the same vague thing? You know, don't they eventually all get you to the same place anyway? Actually, no, not according to the Bible. According to Scripture, there is one God who is worthy of our ultimate allegiance and worship. One God who truly exists from all eternity. And only one mediator between God and sinful people, our Lord Jesus Christ. And apart from him, there is no salvation. That's what Scripture tells us again and again. You think of Acts 4.12. Uh, There's no other name under heaven besides Jesus given among men by which we must be saved, uh, and so on. Pastor and author John Piper puts it this way. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Think about that for a moment. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Last week we looked at real worship in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, and our essential job description of glorifying God, uh, making much of his beauty and majesty, recognizing his worthiness and giving him glory in everything that we do in life. And that is our essential job description. It was, it's what we were made to be and to do, to be worshipers of God. But there's something that gets in the way of that worship. Something that turns us from being children of God into enemies of God. That separates us from his presence. That blinds us from seeing him for who he truly is in his beauty, in his majesty. Something that causes us to give the glory and honor that God deserves to lesser things. Things undeserving of our allegiance or affection. Things that are not God. It's something that left undealt with, 
will result in eternal separation from God in hell. And the Bible calls that something sin. Rebellion against God. It's something that we are all guilty of in big ways, in small ways. And unless our sin is dealt with, it is impossible to know and worship God. It's impossible to do the very thing we were made to do. That is because God is holy. He is above us. He is beyond us. He is perfect and pure in every way, radiant, uh, such that sin cannot enter his presence without being destroyed by his radiance. That's how holy and perfect God is. And so unless our sin is dealt with, it's impossible to worship God. We need a savior. We need someone who will rescue us from that sin so that we can do what God made us to do, to give him the glory he deserves. And that's who Jesus is. God is holy. He is also love. God is holy. He is also love. He did not leave us in our sin, but he sent his eternal son, Jesus, to ransom us from sin, as Peter tells us. Or as Peter says in chapter 2, verses 22 to 25, How unlike us, Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls so what we could never give to god because of our sin jesus gave in our place a perfect offering of a of a blameless sinless life he committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth And what we could never hide from God, Jesus took and buried it in the bottom of the ocean. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, paying the full penalty we owed because of it, paying it in full, drinking the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs, such that if you trust in Christ, there's no wrath left for the believer. It's paid. It's gone. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And through faith in Jesus, we're able to be reconciled to God. We are able to become his beloved children and do what we were created to do, to worship God in all of our life. There's nothing better that God could have given us than himself. There's nothing better that God can give us than himself that we would know and love and enjoy and worship him. And once we've tasted and seen the goodness of God, it's impossible not to want others to see and taste it as well. To to see and experience the grace and mercy we've received, to want to share that with others by making Christ known. We want them to know the wholeness that only Jesus can give. By his wounds, we are healed. 
All that is wrong in this world is being undone through the cross. But the tragedy is that not everybody knows Jesus. And so not everybody knows the grace and the wholeness that is available through him. And therefore, not everybody is able to give God the worship he deserves. And as long as people continue to withhold that worship from God, as long as their passions are directed toward the things of this world that cannot satisfy and that ruin and destroy lives instead of toward God who alone can satisfy, as long as they give the glory that he deserves to something else which is neither best for them nor honoring to God, the church will have a mission. As long as that's happening, the church will have a mission to make disciples of Christ. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Piper continues, when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. And that's what this is about. Living on mission is about the glory of God and what's good for people to know that God through Jesus. It's about worship. But what does mission look like? Our second question. What does it look like when we, like the churches that Peter's writing to uh, in Asia Minor, uh, when we live in a place where Christianity is not the dominant cultural influence, at least not anymore. And so we are living out our faith in the margins of society by and large, increasingly so, as strangers and exiles. What does mission look like? Look at uh, verses 11 through 12 with me. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the nations, honorable, good, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds And glorify God on the day of visitation. What does it look like to live on mission for Jesus? According to Peter, it's doing good in the presence of non-believers. It's doing good, living good lives in the presence of those who don't know Jesus yet. The words doing good and good deeds are a dominant theme in this section of Peter's letter. They come up over and over and over again. And if we keep reading, we notice that that this is something that Peter applies not just to what happens when we gather together as a church, but it's what happens in everyday life, living good lives in the presence of non-believers. We have the general exhortation in what we just read, verses 11 and 12, but then he continues to apply that to different contexts. In verses 13 to 17, he applies that instruction to the context of civic life. So interacting with governing authorities. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, this thing I just told you to do, by doing that, doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So, so in, our, in our public life, 
That's what's supposed to happen. Then he applies it to household and work-related contexts in verses 18 to 25. He says in 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And, and he then anchors that in following the example of Jesus in that work or household-related context. And then he, he continues on in, in the passage we didn't read this morning at the beginning of chapter 3 to apply it in the context of marriage. And so this call to live good lives uh, in the presence of non-believers, uh, it, it's something that permeates all of life. It's not just something that happens overseas or in a church building. Mission happens wherever people fail to give glory to God through Jesus Christ. Missions happen wherever people fail to give glory to God through Jesus Christ. Every sphere of life is our mission field. Every sphere of life. We're always being sent to make much of Christ through the gospel. Which means that mission is not primarily about coming up with new programs and events. Now, we do that, and and those kinds of things can be very helpful. But that's not the main strategy. You are the main strategy. Your life lived every day in honor of God, in the presence of non-believers. That's the strategy. As Steve Timmis and Tim Chester write, at the heart of this mission strategy are not services, courses, programs, and activities, but ordinary lives lived for God's glory. Mission takes place not through attractional events, but attractional communities. It takes place through a people who are changed by the gospel of Jesus and living out of that changed life in such a beautiful way that the world is compelled by it. Or repulsed by it. It goes both ways. It goes both ways. But it's living and applying the gospel to every person in every situation in life. Because the doing good, the good deeds that Peter's talking about here, are not the generic niceness or kind of a spirit of volunteerism or or, or moral uprightness that 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 phrase often uh, connotes today. Just be nice and serve your community, do good. Uh, It's more than that. Uh, nor is he talking about, you know, doing good works to make ourselves look good, either before God or before others. Now, Peter is talking about a goodness that is defined by God and shaped by the gospel. A goodness that is defined by God and shaped by the gospel. A goodness that reflects God's own goodness to us, reflects it to others through the grace that we have in Jesus. So to put it in other terms, we are to adorn the gospel of Jesus before others. We are to put it on display through our lives. As Jared Wilson writes, our good works must be our response to the finished good work of Christ. If our good works are viewed as currency to exchange for the good work of Christ, they will be seen by the lost not as illuminating God's goodness, but illuminating ours. In other words, we're just making ourselves look good. That's not the point. That's not what he's talking about here. Rather, we are to live such good lives among the nations, among the pagans, among the non-believing world. That's what he's referring to here. 
that though they accuse us of doing wrong, though they may in fact oppose what they see and 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 make life miserable for us, as, as Peter goes on to, to describe, that they would actually see those good deeds and see in them a reflection of our good God, empowered by the grace of that God, that they would see that and notice how verse 12 ends and give glory to God, that they would worship God, the whole goal of mission, that they would see through our lives the worthiness of God in the grace of the gospel, and they would give glory to God when Christ returns. So living on mission means living good lives, lives that point to Christ, lives that honor God in the presence of non-believers. Now, that does not mean that we don't have to say anything ever, which I know is disappointing. To some of us, at least, you know, we're not extroverts or whatever, and, and that can be hard. Sometimes we think, as long, you know, can I just, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to share Christ by how I live and, and let them connect the dots because um, it feels safer and, and so on. And, and we do share him by how we live, but at some point you have to open your mouth. At some point you do because the gospel is news. It's news of what God has done. It's not advice for how to live. It's news of what God has done through his son, Jesus, to establish his kingdom, to deal with our sin through his life, death, and resurrection. And without that message, you can't connect the dots. And I've joked about this before, but you might be the nicest person in your office or, or your work, whatever that is. Uh, but nobody's ever going to say, you know, this guy always makes the coffee. He takes the trash out even though it's not his job. He's never forgotten my birthday and I have never seen him talk behind somebody's back. I'll just bet that, that God sent his eternal son Jesus to die for my sins and that if I believe in him, I can have life in his name. You just, that's not gonna happen. We have to use our mouths to explain, as Peter puts it in chapter 3, we have to, uh, in our hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy and always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, but to do this with gentleness and respect. We have to use good words, but those good words should line up with good lives which is the main thing that Peter's emphasizing here. Lives that are marked, uh, as we look at the rest of this passage, lives that are marked by respect for others, by respect for those among whom we live. Notice that Peter commands God's people to respect and submit to their governing authorities, to their masters, even if those authorities fail to reciprocate that respect or that or even if they fail to submit to God. That's not the condition on which we're to offer respect. The fact that they have authority over us is the condition by which we're supposed to offer respect. And you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. How can we say that we're loving someone and trying to reach them for Christ if we fail to show basic respect to them for their dignity as a person, for their authority uh, of their office or their position. That does not mean we agree with everything. Uh, but without respect, what happens to our credibility? You know, 
It's hard to compel somebody to explore Christ if your Facebook feed is full of angry slams on all of the people that they like. You know, how, how do we represent ourselves to others? Do we show respect, even if we disagree? Living good lives among non-believers also means living with integrity. That's a huge point that Peter makes here. So living consistently with what we believe, living consistently with who we are in Christ, living above reproach such that any slander that the world tries to throw at us doesn't stick. You know, it might stick for a little bit, but it will be vindicated in the end. Abstaining from the passions of the flesh, all the things that apart from Christ, Christ we used to love and find identity in, abstaining from sinful passions, the desires that are opposed to God, that are out of line with our identity in Christ. As Peter says in verse 16, live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We have been set free for the sake of freedom, but that freedom is to do what we were made to do. To serve God in honor, not to do whatever our selfish hearts want to do. That's not true freedom. That's still being enslaved to sin. What credit is there in our suffering, for instance? You know, if the opposition that we receive is something we actually deserve because of our sin against somebody or our sin against God. You know, what, what credit is there? There's, to be demoted because you're an unreliable employee is not something to boast about. To be demoted because of your faith in Christ. That, Peter says, is a gracious thing. That comes from a life of integrity. Or, you know, what credibility is there in our message if we don't walk consistent with it? You know, think about the substance. Where's the substance of our life? If, if our dependence on the gospel's only surface deep, Where's the credibility in that? You know, if we gladly accept the grace and forgiveness that God has for us when we mess up, but then turn and withhold that grace and forgiveness from others when they mess up toward us, where's, where's the substance in that? But if we love each other as Christ has loved us with that same grace and mercy and are quick to extend it, even when people don't deserve it, if we gladly lay down our lives to help someone in need, even if it messes up our tidy schedule and all of our plans and expectations for the day, if we're known for our kindness and our gentleness such that our home is the one that the neighbors are gladly willing to trust their kids hanging out at because they know they're going to be well taken care of and safe or or because we're the kind of friend people friend that people know they can call when the wheels come off no matter what hour of night it is and and they're not and they're going to have a listening ear being that kind of person that is a gracious thing in God's sight when the gospel truly shapes our lives and it's a compelling thing in the eyes of the world it's a compelling thing Chester and Timis uh, tell us we are called to be the people everyone would love to have as their neighbors Think about that. We are called to be the people everyone would love to have as their neighbors. How do we thrive as God's people on the margins of society? By living good and attractive lives. How do we impact people who despise and ridicule us? 
by living good and attractive lives. How do we answer the charges of our critics or accusers? By living good and attractive lives. How do we commend Jesus to our friends, family, and neighbors? By living good and attractive lives. Everyday mission is living everyday lives in a distinctly good and attractive way. In a way that adorns the gospel of Jesus to them. So, who then is called to mission? Who exactly is responsible to make Christ known? Well, quite simply, all of us. All of us. Just as we saw last week, uh, that worship is something that the whole congregation does. That the whole congregation is a holy priesthood who offers spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. So part of that worship that all of us offer is to make disciples of Christ, to proclaim the excellencies of God's glory among the nations. We have a tendency to professionalize mission today. We have a tendency to professionalize a lot of things, but this is one of them. So to think of full-time clergy or missionaries as, you know, those are the ones who carry out the mission, And then the rest of us kind of support them with our prayers and gifts and and whatever else. The problem is that's neither effective nor biblical. The Great Commission is for everyone, all followers of Jesus. As we put in our, our vision statement, the way we tried to capture that idea there is that every member is a missionary and every sphere of life is our mission field. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't offices of leadership in the church. You know, uh, there are. It doesn't mean that some people can't be set aside for full-time attention to ministry things. That's totally fine. But the purpose of having shepherds and leaders and people able to give full-time attention to that is not so that they can do all the work of service, but as Paul puts it in Ephesians 4, he says, And Christ gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, so leaders, he gave them, why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's everyone. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that the church would be a mature uh, representation, reflection of God's worthy glory. He's gifted some to equip all. In fact, he's gifted all in different ways to equip one another. All of us are called to make disciples of Christ. We're all called to live on mission to follow Christ's example, to lay our lives down that others might know him. As Peter says in verse 21, for to this you have been called, this whole thing of respecting and submitting and, and living good, honorable lives in the presence of non-believers, even if they don't reciprocate it, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And that's maybe the hardest part of the idea of living on mission is that it often involves suffering. It often involves inconvenience, in opposition. Uh, There's a very real likelihood that when you bring Jesus into a conversation, even with someone you've known for 15 years, that might be the end of the friendship. 
Or it might be the beginning of family with that person. Only God knows. So we are called to lay our lives down for Christ, even if we're opposed or slandered. Because like Christ, we can entrust ourselves to a just judge who sits above those who might treat us unjustly, knowing that in the end we will be vindicated with our Savior. It will end well. So what does all of this mean then for Westgate uh, this year in particular? You know, it's always a, a privilege to stop and reflect on the year behind us and to begin thinking and dreaming about the year, of, uh, the year that's ahead. We are ridiculously blessed as a congregation when it comes to people willing to lay their lives down in service. There are so many stories. There are so many people who give so much uh, to making much of Jesus in the way that they serve in different ministries, to caring for one another. I've been here almost three years now, and I get to boast about you people when I go back home or when I talk with other pastor friends in different areas about the kind of love and grace that this family has for one another. Not everybody gets to boast that way. It is a joyful privilege to be able to shepherd this flock. We have so much to be thankful for. Uh, Where we tend to be weak as a congregation, as we've recognized throughout our whole visioning process, is with respect to mission, is with respect to, to outreach and making Christ known here in our own context. And so for some of us, that's largely a matter of busyness. If we're just going to be honest, um, we're running our kids to 14 different events every week. We're pursuing a career. We're volunteering for the PTA. We're caring for ailing parents. Uh, and, we're, and we're serving in three ministries at the church. And so where's the room for something like what we've been talking about here? Now, it, it might be that we need to say no to some things in order to say yes to our call. To, to lay our lives down for Christ. That might be. It might be that some of the things we're chasing are actually idols in our lives that we're finding our identity and significance in instead of Christ. And that we need to repent of that and find our satisfaction in Jesus, which frees us to love him however he calls. But it might also be that we need to rethink our view of mission. If mission isn't contingent on adding more stuff adding more programs or getting people to a certain location at a certain time in the week. It can, it can involve those things, but if it doesn't depend on those things, but instead in living good everyday lives that, that adorn the gospel of Jesus before a watching world, then maybe it's not so much adding or taking away from our busy life as it is bringing a gospel intentionality to what we're already doing. So, so making the most of that schedule for Jesus. Spending time, you know, hauling your kids to soccer and, and building relationships, that's not necessarily a distraction to the gospel. That might be an avenue for it if we make the most of it. Caring for ailing parents is not an opposition to the mission of God. It's part of it as we love one another genuinely as God has loved us and as the world sees that care. I remember preaching uh, at a nursing home several times when we lived in Chicago. And we would go and there'd be like seven people and four of them asleep during the sermon and so on. Um, But they were dear, lovely people. And I remember one lady, um, 
visiting over coffee afterwards, whose family lived in town, but she never saw them because she couldn't travel. She couldn't get anywhere on her own. They had to come to her. She saw them about twice a year. You know, to, to care for our own is a picture of the love and faithfulness of God. So these things are not necessarily opposed to the mission of God. You know, tonight, most of us are going to be watching this football game. Drop a last-minute invitation to your neighbors or, or accept their invitation that they sent you two weeks ago and you never got around to, to replying to. You're not adding a blessed thing to your schedule, but you're making the most of something for Jesus. And he might not even come up in conversation, but you're building a relationship. Loving people, living good lives, looking for opportunities to give an account for the hope that we have in Christ. So it might be busyness. Um, For others, maybe it's busyness, but maybe we just need help knowing what to do. Uh, You know, we need the leaders to do what Paul says they're supposed to do and equip the saints for the work of ministry. Amen and amen. That is something we want to continually improve on and and do. And and not just, you know, paid staff, but that all of us would, would be part of a culture of discipleship where we are just investing in one another and helping one another grow in Christ. It's also in that light, this light that some of us just plain need help to know what to do. It's also in that light that we're launching a new training conference this spring, our Life on Mission conference. You might have seen a poster or or heard it mentioned um, in an email or something. We do an annual missions conference every fall where we connect with and hear from the missionaries that we support on the field, whether they're globally or here. We we take uh, a week and we devote that attention to what God is doing through the missionaries and agencies that we support. This conference is aimed at equipping us to live on mission right here. So to help us grow in our skill, uh, whether we're trying to share Christ as individuals with somebody, whether we're trying to do it as a congregation or whether we're partnering together in smaller groups. The whole purpose of that is to help us grow in that area. Uh, we've got folks from other churches that are going to be joining us for that conference to attend. Uh, and, and we've got really good speakers, um, gospel-centered, godly, passionate men who are going to be leading us in the teaching, uh, Jared Wilson and Bland Mason. So maybe we need help to grow in living on mission. But maybe we just need an opportunity. Maybe we need an opportunity, someone to partner with, some structure to help guide us, some platform from which to launch. And that's what our community group initiative is about this year. That's that little insert you saw in your worship folder this morning with the little Google map thing on it. The community group initiative. And the goal here is to launch several new smaller groups this year at Westgate. Uh, similar to our home fellowship model, but each group having a clearly defined and shared mission right at the center of it. So some specific area or some specific people that you as a group are committed to reaching out with the gospel of Jesus. It might be a particular neighborhood like what's happening uh, in East Natick with Christianity Explored. It's a good example of it. It might be 
You know, maybe several of your kids are all part of the same school system. And so that school district is, is you adopt as your mission. We're going to love those people. We're going to build relationships. We're going to serve. We're going to adorn the gospel of Christ in that area. Uh, it could be all sorts of things. Each group will go before God and discern what is he calling us to. And that shared mission becomes the organizing principle of the life of that group. Now, that does not mean less Bible or less prayer or less fellowship. It actually bolsters all three of those things. It gives momentum to them because there's something significant at stake in what we do with our Bible reading, in in our prayers, in, in what we're doing with our fellowship as we seek to reach the lost. You can think about it, uh, an analogy with a, with a short-term missions group. If you've ever been on a short-term mission trip, uh, you know, think about what that does to your relationship with the other team members. Uh, there's a certain bond that happens because you're sharing life in closer quarters. You're eating together more often. You cannot hide or run from conflict very easily because you are sharing space and and. and You're on the same team for the same duration. And there's a certain bond that comes from having a shared mission, a common purpose that you're all committed to seeing accomplished. Some of the deepest friendships and greatest seasons of spiritual growth for people happen in those kinds of short-term mission trips. So what if that wasn't the exception to the Christian experience, but that was the norm? Not the short-term going somewhere thing, but what happens during it because you're sharing life in fellowship on mission. What if that was the norm of our Christian experience? What if the people we regularly spend time with at church aren't just friends or acquaintances, but co-laborers in the gospel of Jesus? People that we share life together like family, often enough that we're able to minister the gospel to each other, not run from conflict or hide sin, even as we work together to make Christ known to others. So this this whole community group initiative, it's really, honestly, it's an experiment. Uh, we want to see what God might do to help create that kind of culture of living on mission together among us. Uh, it's a, it's a, actually a continuation of one of the initiatives that we identified when we were having some of these conversations a year ago, we identified three different goals for 2013. This was one of them, uh, and, and this is our attempt to continue to move forward with it, to launch one new outward-facing ministry at a smaller group level. And that smaller group level is important. Um, again, it's not that we're going to minimize what we do when we gather as a whole congregation. We gather for worship to make much of Jesus. We get the whole family together And we give him glory and we learn from him. We're not going to do that less or put less emphasis on it. We're not going to not do congregation-wide outreach events or those kinds of things. And it's not even to say that lots of us don't have certain people we're trying to minister to the gospel to uh, individually. We all have, hopefully, those relationships too. But there's something unique that happens in a smaller group context with family, with community, with mission. As Pastor Bob Thune puts it, the best way to make disciples is in community and on mission. The deepest community comes when we're on mission together as Jesus' disciples. And the most effective mission takes place 
when people both hear the gospel proclaimed by faithful disciples and see it lived out in a vibrant community. We were meant to do this thing called Christianity together. And that's what we want to see growth in as a church. And so I invite you to begin prayerfully thinking about what what might this look like for me to be involved in something like this? Uh, we still have other ministries and so on. It's not that everyone has to participate, uh, but we really want to see what God might do to help us grow deeper in our faith and our community with a specific trajectory toward reaching out for Christ, um, sharing life on mission where we already live and work. And to start with anything like that, it has to start with prayer. And so I encourage you, begin praying. Uh, does God want me to be involved in this? Begin praying. Does God want me to be involved in leading out with some of this? I'm looking in particular for for people who are passionate about something like this and are willing to commit to being trained to lead and launch new groups come next fall. Uh, and to get the ball rolling with that is what the, the flyer in the... Um, worship folder is talking about we're going to have a prayer and an information meeting on february 10th at, at steve and natasha hope's home tasha was out of town when we scheduled that steve said it was okay hope we're good okay so uh but they're graciously opening their home so we can get together and talk a little bit about it and pray a lot about it that's the goal let's get the conversation going and let's start it by seeking god and, and everyone's invited to that. Whether you're interested or just curious, whether you're part of a home fellowship or some other ministry, all of us want to see Christ made known through this congregation. So that's what this is about. God has set Westgate in this place at this time among these people for a specific purpose, and that is to make Christ known. By loving each other in community, by making much of him in genuine worship, and by doing good in the presence of non-believers in our everyday lives. My prayer is that we would live in accordance with these realities, with who we really are as the church, as the people of God in Christ, and that we would follow Christ's example to lay down our lives for the sake of his glory, even if it costs us everything. As Peter says in 419, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Amen.